Nothing reminiscent of what happened in the Garden of Eden. None of the fruit of that fateful decision will be there in the eternal state. It will all be erased from heaven's records and certainly from the reality of the new heaven and the new earth. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part three of a four-part series titled The Eternal State, I Saw a New Heaven and a New Earth. Have you ever wondered what the new heaven and new earth will be like? You're not alone. We're looking at what the Bible has to say about the future of this world and the next. Last time, Tom looked at how this world will come to an end and the promise in Scripture that God will create a brand new universe and earth. But what will this new creation be like? Today, Tom will look at some of the differences and similarities of the current world and the one to come. Let's join Tom right now on The Word Unleashed. A question that entered my mind this week as I was thinking about how most people think of eternity is where did the bland view of eternity come from? Where did the wings and the halos, the harps and the clouds, where did that originate? And so I got to doing a little reading on that front, and I was struck with the reality that it entered into the life of the church early on. It comes from the influence of Plato, from Platonism on the early centuries of the Christian church. Those of you who have some recollection in your minds of the classes you took in college will remember that Plato taught that reality consists of two parts, the physical world and the spiritual world. He said that the physical world was imperfect, transitory, and shadowy, but it was the spiritual world, the world of ideas, the world of spiritual things that represents permanence and perfection. And by spiritual, he did not mean you, spiritual as you and I meant it, or as you and I mean it rather, he meant rather that which is opposed to the physical. So the idea that the physical world and its enjoyment is inherently evil or sinful or unspiritual is not a biblical idea. It is a platonic idea. When God made this world, before the entrance of sin, He called everything He made what? Very good rather than some ethereal, sort of virtual world, the Bible teaches that we will forever enjoy a real world with real cities and real people doing real activities. It's our joy tonight to examine again, not Plato's idea of eternity, but the reality that comes from our God and His great eternal plan. We get to examine again the eternal state of the righteous. Last time we talked about the, the reality that God has promised that He will destroy this current earth and the intergalactic, interstellar space that makes up our universe. He will destroy it. He will consume it, apparently according to first, or Second Peter 3, with an atomic explosion that will absolutely obliterate it. This is promised in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we looked at those in detail last time. But 
The Bible also promises that in place of this universe that exists today, God will create a new heaven and a new earth. That too is prophesied in both Old and New Testaments. In both the Jewish Hebrew Scriptures and in our Lord's Apostles and their writings. So, across the span of the centuries, this reality has been affirmed. The details are what we want to look at tonight. What exactly will it be like? The details of the, we have of the eternal state come almost exclusively, and this is appropriate, from the last two chapters of our Bible. And it's where I want us to turn tonight. We will go through these passages in some detail. And I hope when we're done, you will be more excited about the future than you have ever been. So let's look at a detailed description of these realities. Notice chapter 21, verse 1, Revelation 21, 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now here we get our first clues of what this place, and it is a place, we saw that last time, a real place, what it will be like. God will create a new heaven, that is, a new atmosphere, a new interstellar, intergalactic space. And He will create a new earth, that is, a new planet to replace this one. Now, the clear implication of using the same terms, heaven and earth, that are used for the current heaven and earth, is that there are at least points of similarity between the old and the new. There is every reason to believe that it will be a physical reality. Remember that, as we've already studied, we will have real bodies. They will be glorified bodies, but they will be always physical in terms of their construction. While it's true that there is some metaphor and figurative language in the description, at the same time, John chooses those images that he chooses because they are the closest earthly counterparts to what he actually saw there. Notice, in, if you were to go down through this passage, let me point out to you the points of similarity between this earth and the next. Just run through these. There will be a city there. There will be a high mountain. There will be walls, gates, compass directions, foundation stones, similar measurements, the same precious stones and metals. There will be streets. There will be nations and kings. There will be daytime. There will be a river. There will be trees with fruit and leaves. There will be months. That means there will be the passing of sequential moments. And there will be Christian people. All of those things appear in these two chapters. And so we see that there are great similarities between the current earth on which we live and the future earth. Now, obviously, these things will not be exactly the same as they are in our world as we know them here. But there have to be similarities. By the way, there's nothing in the context here to suggest that these things are anything but just as they are described. There's no reason to believe that they aren't picturing a reality, that they aren't describing something to us, and the best image in our minds that can be used are these images. They are like these things that we know. I can't be sure, but I will tell you that as I've thought about it and studied it over the last several weeks, I fully expect that all the things God said were very good in the first creation will be present in the new creation. 
Now, with that in mind, let's go back to Revelation 21 and look at this new world a little more closely. Let me give you sort of an overview of what we're going to look at together. You have in chapter 21, verses 1 to 4, the initial vision of the new heavens and the new earth. In verses 5 through 8, the absolute certainty of the new heaven and the new earth. And then beginning in chapter 21, verse 9, and running all the way through chapter 22, verse 5, you have a detailed description of the eternal city of the new world. So that's sort of an overview of where we'll be going. Let's start by looking at the initial vision of the new heaven and the new earth. It's found in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 21. I pointed out the many similarities between the new world and this one. There's one huge difference. Notice verse 21. The first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer sea. There's no longer any sea. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled about the significance of that statement and what it really means. Let me give you a brief overview of them. One view is a practical reason. They say, well, the ancient peoples feared the sea, so this pictures the absence of fear. There are those who offer a moral reason for no more sea. That is, the sea is frequently associated with evil in Revelation. And so, therefore, there can be no sea because it's pictured as evil. There are those who offer a scientific reason. This is a fascinating one. Seventy percent of the earth's surface is covered with salt water, an average depth of 2.3 miles. Scientists tell us that the sea, the oceans of the world, are in essence a huge sanitation device, God's great antiseptic solution, as one author describes it. It's 96% water, 3 to 5% salt, and less than 1% of other minerals. Much of the mess that man makes on the earth eventually runs into the world's oceans. And the high salt content breaks that down, cleans the water, and then the sun and the hydrological process, the sun evaporates pure, clean water from the surface of the oceans. And that then falls on the land again, cleansed as rain. So in the new world, they argue, this sanitation device, if you will, will no longer be necessary because everything will be pure and clean. Others say, no, the reason is a metaphoric reason. The sea has always, by divine design, separated the peoples of the earth from each other, and there'll not be that separation anymore. We'll all be one people, so there'll be no more sea. We can't be certain which of those is pictured here, but all of them are remarkable and all of them to some degree true. Verse 2 tells us that there is a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Coming down from heaven, that is from the third heaven, as Paul refers to it, the place where God specially manifests His presence, is this great, glorious city, And we're told that it's having already been made ready, or already prepared. It reminds us of John 14, where Jesus told the disciples on the night before His crucifixion, I go to prepare a place for you. This is the unveiling, if you will, of the place Christ has been preparing. It's called the New Jerusalem. Most believe it will serve as the sort of capital city of the new earth. 
Think about this for a moment. Christ spoke this universe into existence in six literal days, but He's been working on this great city for 2,000 years. John will find himself short of words to describe the magnificence of this city. So in the new world, heaven and earth will be united together by this remarkable city. Verse 3 in this summary that begins this chapter reminds us that God will dwell or specifically manifest His presence among His people on this new earth forever. Verse 4 gives us our first glimpse of what won't be there. Notice there'll be no tears. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No tears of pain, no tears of suffering, no tears of misfortune, no tears of regret, no, no tears of disappointment, of sympathy, of persecution, or of death. All gone. Eric Clapton wrote a song to express his grief after his four-year-old son fell 53 floors to his death. Eric Clapton is no Christian, but listen to how he captured the reality. Time can bring you down. Time can bend your knee. Time can break your heart. Have you begging, please. Begging, please. Beyond the door, there's peace, I'm sure. And I know there'll be no more tears in heaven. Whatever his own spiritual condition, he captured the reality that John the Apostle reflects here. No tears of any kind. He also tells us in verse 4, no death, no mourning or crying, no pain, because the first things have passed away. In other words, everything in this life that is connected to sin and its curse is gone forever. All sorrow, all suffering, all tragedy, all evil, it's gone. That's his introduction. And if that's all we had to anticipate the new world, it would be enough. But there's more. Because he goes on to, to tell us the absolute certainty of this. It's going to happen. And you can bet on it for these reasons. It's based on the character of God. He is faithful and true. And it's based on the nature of God. He is the source and end of all things. So as true, as surely as there is God, as true as He is to His Word, there will be a place like this. Then beginning in chapter 21, verse 9, and running all the way through chapter 22, verse 5, we have a detailed description of the eternal city of the new world. It's the crown jewel of the universe. In verses 9 and 10 of chapter 21, we meet John's tour guide, an angel. And then beginning in verse 11, and running down through verse 21, we have the architectural features of this great city. Notice verse 11, you have an overall impression. It came down from heaven, out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. The entire city is like one giant jewel, turning and sparkling like a diamond in the sunlight. And it cast its dazzling, refracted colors across the brand new universe. That's the overall impression you're to have. Breathtakingly beautiful. A huge, massive city sparkling like a great jewel with multifaceted colors spreading like a rainbow across God's universe. 
In verses 12 through 14, we're told about its walls and its gates. Verse 12 says it had a great and high wall. Now, in the ancient world, as today, walls were for defense. Why do you have walls around the exterior of your house? To protect you from the elements and to be able to protect you as well from others who might desire to do you harm. This city has walls, but they don't serve that kind of purpose because there's no one to threaten its security. So very real walls will symbolize the unalterable security of heaven, the absolute security of heaven symbolized by its walls. And we're told there are 12 gates, three in each compass direction. The implication here with the gates is that we will come and go from the city to the rest of the earth and probably to the rest of an infinite universe. For those of us who like to travel, apparently there will be no shortage in the eternal state. But I'm certain as well there will be no economy class in God's future. Notice that there's an angel posted at each gate. That's further proof of the safety of the city. In verses 15 to 17, we find out about the size of this great city. The angel measures the city, and we discover that it is a perfectly symmetrical cube, 1,500 miles square. That's the distance from Dallas to New York City. Apparently, this city will be connected in some way. There's some who teach that it's sort of a satellite city revolving around the earth. There's nothing to indicate that in Scripture itself. It will somehow be connected to the earth. Now, I've heard some say, well, couldn't be a real city then because a city that big would give the earth a distinct wobble. Now, while that sounds interesting, do you really think that that would be a problem for a being who, with a word, can speak a new universe into existence? Why is it a cube? Well, we can't be sure, but several older commentators have an interesting take on the reality of a cube. They point out that in the temple, the Holy of Holies was a cube, a perfect cube of 30, about 30 square feet. Perhaps this is intended to communicate that the city itself serves as the Holy of Holies for all eternity, the special dwelling place of God among His people. Think about the city for a moment. Think about how much space there would be in a city this size. I mean, for a moment, just think of it as a flat city. That is, not a cube, but just 1,500 miles square, but a city like we know today. A city that stretched from Dallas to New York City, and that squared. Imagine how many people such a city would hold. And then multiply that times all of the multiple levels that a 1,500-mile-high city could accommodate with millions of intersecting golden streets and avenues. Some have estimated that such a city could hold over 100 billion people. What about the materials? Verses 18 to 21 tell us that the city itself is made out of a kind of gold unknown here on earth. A kind of gold that is so pure that it is translucent. A golden tone cast across the entire city. For those of you who are going to join us in Israel next year, and by the way, that is, we'll soon have a brochure for you that is locked in July of next year. If you want other details, you can ask me about it, but we're looking forward to going, and we'll have a little pamphlet for you within the next couple of weeks. But for those of you who are going, we'll take one night, we'll take a tour of the old city with its golden 
cast stones. And at night, with the lights cast upon those stones, it gives the city this iridescent golden glow. That's the picture, but so much more profound here. The walls and much of the city is made up of a variety of precious stones, likened to precious stones here. Now, there's disagreement about what each stone may be, but most commentators agree that there is a huge variety of transparent, brilliant color, greens and blues, purples, reds, and many other tones and shades and hues. And all of these add to the sort of golden tone of a glass-like gold and the translucent quality of a jewel city. In the end, what you have, if you can picture in your mind's eye, is this sort of magnificent jeweled city splashing its radiance around the universe with all the colors of the rainbow. The gates, we're told, are each made of one divinely fabricated pearl. Don't picture an oyster that big. That's not what it's saying. Although as much as I like oysters, that could be a little bit of heaven in and of itself. Rather, God Himself makes each of the gates pearl. Now notice what won't be in heaven. What won't be in heaven? Beginning in verse 22 of chapter 21 and running down through verse 5 of chapter 22. First of all, there'll be no temple. Verse 22 says that I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. It needs no temple because we will worship in the very presence of God Himself. There doesn't need to be a place where He specially manifests His presence because He will be present and we will worship Him in His presence. There's no cosmic light source. Verse 23 says, And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. No cosmic light source. Isaiah had prophesied this. Isaiah 24:23. Then the moon will be abashed, and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and His glory will be before his elders. The moon hides and the sun covers itself because God Himself is the light. When compared to the glory of God, a huge star like our sun would appear to be a mere glowing spark of an extinguished candle. God Himself is its light. There's also no danger in this city. Verse 25, In the daytime... For there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. The gates will never close. In an ancient city, just as you lock your doors at night, or at least I hope you do, um, in an ancient city the gates were closed and barred. Why? To protect the city's residents from any harm that may come from outsiders. But this city has no danger, and so the gates never close. There will never be a threat to the peace, the prosperity, and the security of this great city and of eternity. There will also be nothing evil that will be there. Notice verse 27. 
and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The implication isn't that they're still wandering around and may find their way into the city. Remember, we read at the end of the last chapter, Revelation 20, and we studied together that at the great white throne judgment, our Lord Himself will cast all of those who rejected Him and who refused to turn from their sin into the lake of fire. There's no one left like this. This is merely an affirmation that this new world will never be touched, will never be tainted by any evil. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part three of his series titled The Eternal State, I Saw a New Heaven and a New Earth. Tom will have part four for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's the wordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.